Open your Bibles up to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, it's on page 519 if you have one of our Bibles uh, from the, the bookshelf over there from the welcome table. Uh, just a quick refresher on the Psalms. They're, they're, they're a collection of 150 poems written by several different authors. And they span over hundreds of years of Israel's history. And these poems were set to music. They were sung by the people of Israel in worship to God. The, the, the book of Psalms was essentially like a hymnal, if you will, for God's people that helps bring their minds and their hearts and their voices together in praise to the one who created and redeemed them and who promised to give them a forever kingdom with a forever king. They cover many different themes and literary forms, and, and Psalm 86 is, is a prayer of, of lament and praise written by King David. It's a, a lament. Sometimes we, we think of the word lament, and we think maybe it's just, you know, just complaining, but it's more than that. It's, a, it's an expression, a heartfelt expression of deep sorrow and grief. You ever felt those? The Psalm of David will help you take your sorrow and grief to the only one who will not only listen, but actually be able to do something about it, who will give you the help that you need. And so I want to pray that the Lord would open our eyes and our hearts to his word, and we'll begin. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things here, that you would lead us through Psalm 86 straight to Jesus that we would find rest and hope and peace and joy and help in him no matter what sorrows or grief we're facing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we know to be true about someone will determine how we interact with that person. What we know to be true about someone will determine how we interact with that person. Let me give you an example. If you, if you know someone is an absolute jerk, then you're probably not going to invite them over to your house for supper, right? If you know someone is incompetent to take care of herself, then you're probably not going to ask her to babysit your kids, right? On the other hand, if you know that someone is helpful and trustworthy, then they'll probably get a, a star in your contacts list. Keep them on speed dial. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's, it's vital, it's necessary that we understand what is true about him, that we know who he really is because it's ultimately going to determine how we interact with God. And the good news is that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder because God has told us about himself in his word. Listen to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of Moses. Moses asked him to show me your glory, Lord. And this is what he did. He passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, The Lord. The Lord is compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In these two verses, God has revealed to us that he is compassionate and gracious and patient and faithful and loving and truthful and consistent and forgiving and righteous and just. Two verses, we get all that. 
And that's not even the exhaustive list of all that God is, but it's enough for the psalmist to, include, uh, to conclude in Psalm 119.68, God, you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and you do what is good. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this passage is fundamental to a proper understanding of who God is, and it's quoted time and again across the pages of Scripture by those who rely on these truths that God has revealed about himself. This passage will form the backbone of our passage today of of Psalm 86. Everything that, all the words that David gives us, they hang on, on this reality of who God is. And so here's our main takeaway as we work through this psalm today. Because God is good, we should call on him for help. Because God is good, we should call on him for help. Psalm 86 is going to show us that we should call on God because he is kind and ready to forgive. Because he alone is God and because he is compassionate and gracious. Let's start with the first one. We should call on God because he's kind and ready to forgive. Look at Psalm 86, verses 1 through 4. A prayer of David. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I appeal to you, Lord. David opens this psalm with four petitions to God and four reasons for those petitions. The first petition is in verse 1. Listen, Lord, and answer me. Another English translation, maybe yours, it's in your lap, says, incline your ear, O Lord. In other words, turn towards me, lean in, bend down, give me your full attention. Listen intently to what I have to say and answer me. And then David gives the reason, for I am poor and needy. Well, we were on vacation last week, we were walking downtown uh, Branson doing a little souvenir shopping and we came across uh, at one of the street corners uh, a, a couple of, the, uh, of people that were sitting there uh, looked disheveled and had uh, you know cardboard signs and, and um, were asking for help with the signs. Now, can I just confess to you that I struggle with knowing what to do when I come across a situation like that? All outward appearances would suggest that they're poor and needy, but I have no idea what is going on inside their heart in that moment. These two people were in ragged clothes. They were holding cardboard signs, but they weren't behaving like someone in desperate need. They were smiling and chatting with each other like two coworkers at an office cubicle during break time. And I couldn't help but wonder, did they actually need what they had passively written on their cardboard signs, or had they employed themselves by taking advantage of the out-of-towners who didn't know any better? And I also have to confess that I wasn't ready to incline my ear to listen long enough to see what was the case. I struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? Remember the psalm I read for our call to worship this morning, Psalm 113? Listen to verses 5 through 8 again. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high? Who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Here it is. 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap in order to seat them with nobles, with the nobles of his people. God is not like you and me. He never struggles to figure out what's really going on. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God always knows all of the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. But the verses in Psalm 113 that I just read help us understand the thoughts and the intentions of God's heart toward those who are truly poor and needy. What does he do? He stoops down. He lifts them up. He cares for them. He listens to their cries for help. And David knows this about God. He uses God's covenant name here in verse 1. In your Bible, it's probably in small, all caps, Lord. Yahweh. It's the name that God gave to Moses when he said, this is who I am in Exodus 34. The Lord. And then he defined what that name meant. David's petitioning the God who's made himself known to his people, the God who loves them as his own. Two weeks ago, Grant talked about praying to God as our Father. Last week, Tim talked about God's steadfast love being our most precious treasure. When you're desperate and you know that you have a heavenly Father who unfailingly loves you and who gives particular attention to the poor and needy, you wouldn't passively hold up a sign asking for help, would you? Not to the Lord, no. You would cry out to God like David does. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Are you desperate? Are you poor? Are you needy? God already knows that you are. And he raises the poor from the dust And he lifts the needy from the trash heap. So why not cry out to him for help? David makes the second petition in verse 2. Protect my life. Preserve me. Guard me. And David's reason for making this petition, for I am faithful. Now hold on a second. If we know anything about David, what do we know about him? He's an adulterer and a murderer. That's like the antithesis of faithfulness, isn't it? You don't label somebody faithful when they've committed those things. But faithfulness here does not mean sinlessness. David is not saying, protect my life, God, because I'm perfect. Second part of this verse helps us understand what he's getting at. He says, you are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Who trusts in you. The faithfulness that David attributes to himself here is not perfection, it's trust, it's dependence upon the Lord. He says, you are my God. In other words, the the implication there is, and no other. You are my God and no other God is. David relies on God's character and he believes God's promises and that leads David to faithfully and regularly confess his sin and his need for God. You know that we never will not need God? So let's just not pretend. David's petition for God to protect him implies that David can't protect himself. If you can do it on your own, why would you ask for help? Right? His request for God to save him implies that David cannot save himself. 
every request for God to save, every saving act that God performs in the Old Testament is designed to drive us to the ultimate salvation that we all need and the ultimate salvation that God alone provides for us in Jesus Christ. If anyone could say, protect my life because I'm perfect, who is it? It's Jesus, right? Literally the only one. He's God in the flesh. And as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus lived a perfect life, a sinless life, in total obedience to God the Father. He was faithful in its truest sense. And God the Son put on the flesh and the blood of humanity so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That's Hebrews 2. Because Jesus is God, he could save himself from death. That was like the, the most common heckle that people said. If you really are the son of God, then come on down. Save yourself. But what did he do? He didn't save himself. Instead, he willingly chose to shed his own blood on the cross in order to save others, in order to purchase the forgiveness of sins for all who trust in him and, and to reconcile them to God fully and forever. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, destroying the power of death and the devil, proving that God the Father accepted his sacrificial payment on our behalf, and freeing us from the fear of death by granting us eternal life in him. Are you afraid to die? Do you fear death? Why not confess your inability to save yourself? Why not confess your inability to protect yourself? Why not cry out for the help that the only one that can actually give it to you, the only one that can truly save you, he will listen and he will answer. Look at David's third petition in verse 3. Be gracious to me, Lord, and the reason for I call to you all day long. See, God doesn't ignore his children. It's not like David's been, been throwing prayers up into thin air. God doesn't view our persistent calls to him as nagging. He sees them as dependents. There's a big difference. He actually invites us to be persistent in our prayers to him. Grant talked about this a couple weeks ago. This week, take a look at Luke 11, Luke 18. See what Jesus says about prayer. God does not respond to the prayers of his children with impatience or harshness. He responds with grace. That's why David is asking for it. Be gracious to me, God. Why does God do that? Because he is good, and he does what is good, and he gives grace to the humble. So if you believe this reality, wouldn't you be humbly persistent in asking for what God freely grants? Why would you ever want to give up? Wouldn't you want to call on him all day long, knowing that he will answer you? David's fourth petition is in verse 4. Bring joy to your servant's life. And then the reason, because I appeal to you, Lord. Literally, I lift up my soul to you. It's a Hebrew expression of trust. Trust in the Lord. When we trust God, we'll inevitably see the magnitude of his trustworthiness. Why? Because God never fails us. Not one time. He never betrays our trust. Not even once. Can you say that honestly about anyone else in your life? 
David is lamenting over the hardships that he's, he's experiencing, and yet he knows that there is joy to be found in the midst of them because his source of joy is not in his circumstances. If you have a, an if only, like if only this would happen, then this, if that in, if only is anything other than Christ, then whatever you think is going to happen probably won't happen. Jesus is the source. David's source of joy is God himself. If your soul is weighed down by hardship and pain, then why not lift it up to the Lord and trust? Trust to bring you joy in the midst of what you're going through. Listen, Lord, and answer me. Protect my life. Be gracious to me. Bring joy to your servant's life. These are the four petitions that David makes. And even though he gives specific reasons for each one of them, he gives the ultimate reason for all of them in verse 5. Look at, look at verse 5. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. David is dependent upon and he's confident in God's own description of himself. He's taking God at God's own word. Some people want to argue that God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. That somehow he's this God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. But in order to make that argument, you have to completely ignore what God has said about himself in the second book of the Bible. And you have to ignore the fact that over and over again in the Old Testament, people like David repeat the same things about God that God has said about himself because they believe that he never changes. David says here in verse 5, For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, ready to forgive. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Does that sound like a different God to you? It's true that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He wouldn't be righteous and just otherwise. God does not automatically forgive everyone indiscriminately. We don't all end up in the same place at the end. But he does forgive everyone who truly asks for his forgiveness, everyone that recognizes that they are indeed poor and needy, and they come and they cry out to him for help. And here, here's the beauty of it. He invites everyone to ask. David says God is kind and ready to forgive. Why wouldn't you want to ask him for what he's ready and waiting to give you? David is confident in God's willingness to forgive, and so David asks for forgiveness. Look at verse 6, 7. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cries for mercy. I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. Sometimes our hardships are a result of our own sin. Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. But if God is kind and ready to forgive, then there's no reason to leave any doubt when we face difficulties. Is this because I did something to sin against the Lord? Well, then why not just ask God to forgive me? David's, David prays this. Or, or, or the, the psalmist in Psalm 19 prays this. Lord, forgive my hidden sins, like the ones I don't even know about. Why wouldn't we just want to keep a short account with God? There's no reason, no reason to leave any doubt. So we cry out, cry out for his mercy because he will answer us in the day of our distress. We should call on God because he's kind 
and ready to forgive, and we should call on God because he alone is God. Look at verse 8. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. God has no equal, not in heaven, not on earth, not anywhere. Think about that for a second. That means that God, what God has said about himself in the fundamental passage in Exodus 34, no one else can make the same claims about themselves. Nobody. Here in verse 8, David said, Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. Every other God is no God at all because the one true God proves them to be false every single time. No one is like him and no works are like him. That helps us put Psalm 119.68 into perspective, doesn't it? God, you are good and you do what is good. You are good. No one is like him. You do what is good. No one does what he does. If no one is, God, is like God, then that means no one else is inherently good. Jesus confirmed this reality when he told the rich young ruler. He calls him good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody is good but God alone. Nobody is good except God alone. It's a good thing Jesus is God, right? If no works are like God's, then that means that no one else inherently does what is good, inherently does what is good. Good character and good deeds can never find their source in sinful human hearts. Romans 8 tells us that those who are in the flesh, aka, aka sinful people, cannot please God. They can't. It says they're unable to submit to him because the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God going to battle him every time. Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from ourselves. It's God's gift, not from our own works so that no one can boast. Instead, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God, the one who is good and the one who does good, prepared ahead of time for us to do. We cannot be reconciled to God by our own good works because none of us is good and none of us does good in and of ourselves. We can't get to heaven by being a quote-unquote good person because no one is good except for God alone. Even the very best things that we do are still polluted by our sin. Even those things that that have the appearance of good, if they're done without faith in God, they ultimately fail to meet their end, which is to please Him. Listen, just because water is clear does not mean that it's pure. Just because it looks good doesn't mean that it actually is good. We can only be good and we can only do good when the God who is good and does good re creates us in Christ Jesus by his grace through faith and lives in us by his Holy Spirit in order then to enable us to do what pleases him, the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. 
No nation exists apart from God, even though many nations reject God. Every human being is made to know and love and worship and serve the God who is good and who does good. What happens, though? Sin keeps us from doing that. But it can't keep God from accomplishing his good purpose for creating humanity. That's what we saw at the very end of Genesis. You plan for evil, God meant for good, right? To bring about the salvation of many. That's why he sent Jesus to restore what sin had corrupted, the human heart. Luke 24, the risen Jesus met two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he explained to them that the scriptures foretold that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Revelation 15 tells us of the song that will one day be sung in heaven, and it echoes the words here of David in uh, verses 8 through 10. Listen to Revelation 15, 3 and 4. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. You hear them repeating who God is? Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Translation, you are the only one that's good. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Remember God's covenant with Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him? Here in verse 9, David, the king of God's chosen nation, Israel, and a descendant of Abraham is proclaiming his confidence that God will indeed keep that covenant promise. The song in Revelation 15 celebrates that God has kept that covenant promise by fulfilling it ultimately through Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. David's confidence in God's godness leads him to proclaim his own desire to honor God alongside the nations. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. I will praise you with all my heart, Lord my God, and, you will, and, and will honor your name forever. For your faithful love for me is great, and you rescue my life from the depths of Sheol. In 2018 at the Golden Globes, Oprah Winfrey won the Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award, and during her acceptance speech, she said this, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we all have. That phrase, speak your truth, has become a pervasive mantra in our culture. It's meant to empower individual autonomy by allowing one to create one's own identity free from outside threat or influence. But let me ask you this. How can 8 billion people each create and speak their own truth without those so-called truths ever contradicting one another. What happens when one person's truth allows them to take the life or the lives of another person or many people? Speaking your truth is a powerful tool, but it's a tool of destruction, not a tool of freedom. Did you hear what David said in verse 11? Teach me your way, Lord. And I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. David's not looking inside himself. He's not speaking his truth. He knows that true freedom in life is found outside of himself. 
and that it's found only in the God who created him. That God is the same God who created us, and he's taught us his way. John 14, we'll look at it as we go through the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The most powerful tool that we have is not to speak our truth, but to speak his. It's the only truth that's really true and the only one that truly leads to life. I am the truth, Jesus says. I am the way. Lord, teach me your way. Where do we end up? At Jesus. And I will live by your truth. Who do we end up with? Jesus. David knows that his heart can be divided in its affections because of the sin that remains. And so he asks God, give me an undivided mind. Literally make me one. And then he says, and then I will praise you with all my heart. You see, David longs for wholehearted devotion to the Lord, but he knows that he cannot keep this greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength unless the Lord enables him to do so. And so he asks. Once again, David roots the reason for his petition in Exodus 34 in God's own description of himself. In verse 13, for your faithful love for me is great and you rescue my life. Literally, you deliver my soul from the depths of Sheol. Jesus is the ultimate picture of God's faithful love and rescue. And as followers of Christ, we are people of a new covenant, the new covenant with God that that Christ established. And in that new covenant, God has delivered our souls from death. We sang that very first song this morning. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. That's the new covenant promise. One of them. God's given us new hearts, and he's placed his Holy Spirit in us so that we can honor his name forever. Not only that we can, but we also want to. And he's given us his word so that we can learn his way and live by his truth. There's no one like him and no works like his. If you long for wholehearted devotion to him, but you know that your heart is prone to wander, then remember his faithful love and his rescue and call out to him. We should call on God because he alone is God. And we should call on God because he is compassionate and gracious. Look at verse 14. God, arrogant people have attacked me. A gang of ruthless men intends to kill me. They do not let you guide them. And so here we we finally learn David's hardship, the nature of it. He begins by saying, I'm poor and needy, and now we see what that looks like. Arrogant and ruthless men are trying to kill him. We're not given specific details beyond that, but as king of Israel, David has several enemies that had tried to kill him throughout his life. The lack of specific details here, though, enables the singer of the psalm to relate then to David's difficulties. Listen, we've all experienced to varying degrees of opposition to our lives. Maybe we've not been threatened with death before, but we all have had someone who works against us. David points to the root of that cause of the opposition in verse 14. They do not let you guide them. They don't want God to teach them his way. They don't want to live by God's truth. Remember the first part of Psalm 36 last week that Tim preached. Psalm 36, 1 through 4, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. This is a description of these ruthless men here. They fall under this. Dread of God has no effect on him, for with his flattering opinion of himself, Lord, arrogant men, right? With his flattering opinion of himself, he he does not discover and hate his iniquity. The words from his mouth are malicious and deceptive. He has stopped acting wisely and doing good. 
Even on his bed, he makes malicious plans, and he sets himself on a path that is not good, and he does not reject evil. Anyone who opposes God's people also opposes God's ways and ultimately opposes God himself. And yet, even though we have sin that remains in our hearts, we can be confident that God will never abandon us to our enemies because of it. And David gives us the reason why in verse 15. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. All throughout this psalm, David has been alluding to God's description of himself from Exodus 34. Here he quotes God verbatim. As I studied through this this incredible list of God's attributes, both here and in Exodus 34, I was struck by something that, that particularly stood out to me this time. These words tell us that God is full of grace and truth. We're going to start the Gospel of John together next week. You know what we're going to see in the very first chapter? John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father. Full of what? Grace and truth. What God has told us about himself in Exodus 34 and what David reiterates word for word here in verse 15 is what Christ himself embodies as the Son of God and the Word made flesh. The God who revealed himself to us in Exodus 34 is the same God who came to us in John chapter 1. Not only does God refuse to abandon us to our enemies because of our sin, but he came to us while we were still his enemies, and he rescued us from ourselves. And he did that because, why? He's a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And David's utter and absolute confidence and his utter and absolute dependence upon God and who God is leads him to this final petition at the end of the psalm. Look at verse 16 and 17. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your female servant. Show me a sign of your goodness and my enemies will see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. Verse 16, if you look at it, it's a reiteration of the first three verses. Essentially, David's saying, God, be who you are. Be who you are and hear me and save me. And when he asks God in verse 17 to show him a sign of God's goodness, it's not because David is doubting that God is actually good. Think about how David has spoken about God throughout this psalm. Verse 5, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Verse 10, for you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Verse 13, for your faithful love for me is great and you rescue my life from the depths of Sheol. Verse 15, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Is David questioning God's goodness here? No. You don't say things like that about God unless you're convinced that he's good. David isn't asking for a sign of God's goodness because he needs to be convinced of it. He's asking for it because his enemies need to be convinced of it. If David is saying in verse 16, God, be who you are and save me, then in verse 17 he's saying, God, show yourself so that my enemies will see you and see who you are and they'll understand then who they are. 
Let your goodness expose their wickedness and put them to shame because while they want to hurt and kill me, you have helped and comforted me. David doesn't ask God to destroy his enemies. Sometimes he does in the Psalms, but here he doesn't. He asks God to put them to shame. Perhaps in their shame, they'll realize that they have not let God guide them. And David's prayer will become their prayer, that God would teach them his way so they can live by his truth. Perhaps they will see God's kindness, and that will lead them to repentance, to the God who is ready to forgive. Perhaps when they see that God alone truly hears and helps those who call on him, perhaps they too will see themselves as poor and needy and cry to him for mercy. As we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see seven signs that point to God's ultimate goodness in Jesus Christ. And the good news of the Gospel of Jesus is that God takes his enemies and makes them his people, his children, through his Son. Every one of us is poor and needy. Because because of Christ, we can find help and comfort in the God who never changes. Did you notice how God's abounding faithful love was mentioned in each section of this psalm? You know, God's love cannot be faithful if God himself isn't faithful. Because God is good, we should call on him for help. So whether you're his enemy or you're his friend, whether you're causing hardship or experiencing it, cry out to him. You literally have no excuse not to. Because he's kind and he's ready to forgive. Because he alone is God and because he is compassionate and gracious. God is who he says he is and he always will be. May we be honest about who we are poor and needy people, and may we see his goodness to us in Jesus Christ and say along with King David, you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us your goodness in its fullness in Jesus Christ, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to be honest about our need. We are poor and needy. And yet you've supplied all that we need in Jesus Christ and you've made us rich in him. Every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Father, would you be praised through your son all for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.